First Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to read from verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And amen indeed. Let's seek the Lord. Let's ask for His help as we gather this evening. Lord, we pray for Your help. We gather tonight, and we are just a small assembly of people that the vast majority of which You've redeemed by Your blood. You've called us by Your grace you have transformed us in various ways. We're far from the finished product, as it were, but we have been transformed. We have been brought to love our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been brought to confess our sins. And even in this hour, we afresh confess our sins. We acknowledge, Lord, that in me dwelleth no good thing. We acknowledge that there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And we cry, O God, that you would deepen our understanding of our sin, that we may behold the glory of what is provided for us in Christ. All is our love for him cause us to see more of thy glory and come to us as a people. We are a people relatively well-read. There is much maturity in the congregation, and yet, in some ways, we feed ourselves to be but babes. And we need the Lord to come and feed us, to give us the milk and the meat that we need, because we are far too weak. And we need to be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. Remember those that are laid aside, some of which would normally be with us this very night on this occasion. Give grace to them, we pray. Strengthen them. May their body and their health recover, and may it please you, Lord, to raise them up. We ask also that you'll remember all of our seniors and keep them from discouragement and keep them from being downcast and uh, 
overcome with sorrow and just checking out. See, it's so easy just to check out at a certain point, not even just with age, but even at any point in our lives when we feel like we're overcome and overwhelmed by changes in our circumstances. So Lord, help us to keep pressing on toward the mark. And whatever place we find ourselves to learn to be content. So help us tonight. Cleanse us in the blood of the Lamb. Give us the help in the place of prayer that we desperately need. Hear all this, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight, beloved, a little different. Uh, Almost, I'm not going to ask for, his, uh, for you to raise your hands, but uh, I'm curious about those of you who have maybe heard about the uh, Asbury revival that is going on currently in Asbury University in Kentucky. There may be some of you who are not aware, completely oblivious. You're like, I don't know what the preacher's talking about. And others of you that have seen it and maybe been following it and trying to track what on earth is going on. Well, for those who don't even know about the school, it's a, it's a Christian, private Christian school there in Kentucky. It's a non-denominational school with a heritage that aligns with like Wesleyan holiness. Even the, the name of the school is after an old uh, itinerant Wesleyan preacher, Francis Asbury, who was a... Uh, an assistant to John Wesley, uh, born in England and then moved over here and spent a lot of time here ministering in the colonies and uh, trying when they, apparently, just reading about this today, that when the, uh, when the Revolutionary War broke out, he's like trying to maintain this line of, of uh, neutrality. <laughs> like it was just taking no position, you know, trying to say, leave it there. And yet there were some states, of course, that made that a matter of treason. Uh, you, you had to be on the side of, of the, the Americans, as it were. So, last week, I think last Thursday, I think it was last Thursday, something popped up on my radar about, I suppose, a revival. Basically, at the chapel at the school, there had been uh, some kind of move that had brought the students to stay after the chapel should have been finished. A group of them continued on in prayer, in confession of their sins, apparently, and were uh, just kind of brought to stay in that place. And others began to join them, and it just continued through this extended time of, of singing and prayer, and eventually, certainly by Thursday, Friday, there were more participating, getting involved, and there would become sort of testimony times as well where these students would take a time to stand up and share what God had done in their life, how he had brought them to repentance, how he had brought them to maybe assurance or salvation, how he had caused them to reconcile with those that they had been at odds with or, or whatever. Just various testimonies. And of course, everybody's watching on. You know, uh, hearing this, and this is the age of social media, so news travels fast. And the first uh, account I was reading, reliable account, was coming from 
one of the university uh, reporters, as it were, uh, just that detail normal news and events around the university. And they were just, you know, detailing, you know, day two, day three of, of what's going on there at the school. And, you know, as, as it kind of builds and gets momentum, which is clearly going on, uh, you become more curious and you try to figure out what, what's going on. And, of course, there, there are those that... You, you, we try to assess what category you're in. There, there are some that, let's say, they might be in the, the gullible camp. Then there are those that might be in the cynical camp. There are those that might be in the indifferent camp. They don't really care. And then there's the camp where I think I find myself hopeful without shedding discernment. <laughs> it's, it's like, okay, maybe there's something to this. Without casting aside certain criteria that you would expect if God really is at work. Now, the, the th- term is already going around. If you, if you look for it, it'll be the Asprey Revival. That'll be phrased like that. And immediately you're asking the question, well, well what? What do you mean by revival? What do you mean by revival? The text comes to mind here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Test. Test everything. You have a right to. You're not to just cast aside discernment. You're not to cast aside Scripture. You're not to cast aside what the Word of God tells us about what to expect in any scenario. And so we are to test. Try the spirits. Test what's going on. Evaluate carefully and see if there's something blatantly against Scripture, something that's blatantly anti-Christian, something that may be outrightly blasphemous or whatever. Now, Lloyd-Jones said that revival is a passing by of God's glory. God reveals himself in a way that he is not often known or experienced. That's a very broad term or broad definition. A passing by of God's glory. Well, what, what might that look like? Because as you read some of the assessment that is going on, some are saying, well, I, I listened to the sermon that was preached at chapel that Wednesday, and I didn't hear the gospel presented clearly. And so they immediately dismiss it because that first chapel message didn't clearly present the gospel. Well, I listened to it as well. But that's not, I don't think I would come and immediately dismiss it simply because there may be one or two things missing in what was declared. Revival is, it is, it's God coming down, God moving in an an unusual way, and people are stirred, something happens in their hearts. It's not like revival happens and no one really knows what's going on. You know it's happening. You know. And we have a history in our churches of, of believing that it's a real thing, that God does this. He advances His purposes through outpourings of His Spirit. Apparently, there were some reports of Presbyterian students that are on campus and they're studying there and they have no category for what's going on. They're not quite sure how to evaluate what's going on, whereas those who may be more of a Wesleyan or holiness background would would have a history. They would understand revival. And you see that broadly across even the church as well. And I've been 
looking at some theologians and seminary professors, well-known theologians, and some of them have been, let's say, supportive. I would say cautiously, but supportive. And others have outrightly dismissed it. They've written articles on their blogs or on their platforms, and they have just immediately dismissed it because they don't have a category for it. They, they, they term it as, well, this is, this is a, a form of tradition, and that's within a certain camp, and we in the kind of Reformed, Presbyterian, Dutch Reformed camp, we don't have that. And so they just, they just dismiss it. Well, we're not ones to dismiss the outpouring of the Spirit. And Jonathan Edwards, as I have quoted on numerous occasions, said, Though there be a more constant influence of God's Spirit always in some degree attending His ordinances, just general means of grace, ordinary means of grace, though the Spirit is always there attending His ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards Carrying on this work, that's advancing the kingdom, always have been by remarkable effusions at special seasons of mercy. Now, Edwards was well acquainted with anomalies in these awakenings or revivals or outpourings of the Spirit. He saw them and evaluated them. In fact, even as you compare some of his writings from earlier stuff to later stuff, he is revising his understanding of what really should be going on and clarifying how to test these things. And he wrote a number of uh, tracts and sermons as well that deal with this subject. But I I just want, if you haven't heard about it already, well, you're probably going to go home and you're going to do your thing, Google it and so on. You're going to get up to speed. And maybe you'll you'll start looking at it and maybe checking on it every day and trying to follow. And maybe your mentality will be because you are of a more critical mindset. You're looking for the issues. And others of you, because all the other headlines in the nation are so negative, you're so desperate for something to be spiritually positive that you're going to cast aside any red flags and just say, yes, whatever it is, I'm happy that it's going on. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. In other words, look at everything, test everything, and see where the good is, and value it. Take what you can. Take what you can. Think, think of the deliverance of, of, of the children of Israel out of Egypt. Evaluate that generation. Look at what's going on. Were there mighty displays of God's power there? Now, I know it's different. We're talking Old Testament era. God's revealing himself in different ways. I, I understand that. But just, just for a moment, God, God still is revealing his power and his glory. Look at how he's revealing himself. And consider the manifestations of divine power and presence that was known in that generation. And then ask yourself, did it also experience satanic, demonic, evil attacks that sought to corrupt it? Were there things that went on that were evidently wrong? 
that diminished the testimony of what was happening in the community? Absolutely. Over and over again. Through unbelief, through idolatry, through other expressions of wickedness and sin. So even in, even in a period where God shows almost unparalleled power in a generation, it doesn't so drown out the voice of Satan or the activity of the devil that it no longer is to be seen. And so in any move of the Spirit, you're always going to get an increased, ramped-up attack of Satan to try and discredit, destroy, discourage, denigrate what's going on. So, if you haven't looked already, you will, and you're going to see some things, and you're going to say, it's not what I would want to be going on if there was a move of the Spirit, and I would say, yep, I'd be the same. And yet, and yet I see, I see the, the, the same issue even during the apostolic era. Philip goes to Samaria, preaches Christ. There's a move of the Spirit of God. Great joy in that city, Acts 8. But you have the Simon the sorcerers who are just stuck right in the middle of it. And they're trying to be a part of it and trying to, in a chameleon fashion, suggest that they are a legitimate product of it before they're exposed. So, just some evaluation, so, so just a few things to, to think about here. Uh, first of all, some positives that I see, and you may see if you look on. It's refreshingly controlled when you're watching on what's happening. What I mean is, there are more conservative churches where you'd find more ludicrous activity that would go on. I mean, you, you know, you, there are those Baptist churches where you find people running up and down the aisles and things like that going on. These are, would be supposedly conservative Baptist churches, but, you know, people are running up and down the aisles and all sorts of strange noises at times and things that happen there. You don't, you don't really see that. At least I haven't seen it really much. Just a chapel full of, of students, young people, mostly just sitting in their pews or in their seats where they are, singing, sometimes, some of them clearly in a posture of prayer, others up at the front, altar, whatever, up near the front of the stage, praying, confessing sin, whatever they're doing. But it's, it's, not, it's not like hectic, it's not ecstatic, it's not crazy. It looks rather normal, there's no fog and mist, there's no kind of disco-type lights going on. It's just a well-lit, traditional chapel auditorium with right there at the front, holiness onto the Lord. It's a good thing to have, staring everyone in the face. So it's controlled, largely. There seems also to be an emphasis on the confession of sin. There's testimony times that are given to this where this is what they're doing. They're con 
They're expressing the fact that they have fallen short. Now, you know, does Satan move to bring people to a, a confession and repentance of their sin? Is he behind the humbling of the soul to the point that people are letting go of hurts and sins and behavior and whatever else it is that's going on in their hearts and lives? And, I mean, generally, he's not behind that. So I say, well, that, that has to be a good thing. Confessing sin. There's lots of singing and lots of prayer. This has been criticized. Not enough preaching of the word. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But those of you who know the history of revival know a number of them were marked by an emphasis on singing as well as prayer. It became the dominant activity. It wasn't without preaching. And this isn't without preaching. Preaching is happening. But there's a dominant emphasis on singing and prayer. So it doesn't seem to me to be a reason to criticize it. Simply because the primary activity, spiritual activity they're giving themselves to is singing and praying. I mean, if you're filled with the joy of the Lord, what do you want to do? If God comes down, often when God comes down, preaching stops anyway. Because the preacher's overcome. He can no longer minister the word. And everyone's just there, sensing that something's going on. Everyone's sort of cut in, like God's cut everyone off from really what's happening and is dealing with their hearts. So generally, preaching often stops on those occasions anyway. Now, it can be triggered by preaching. And, and this was triggered, it would appear to me, it was triggered by a chapel service where there was preaching. The latter verses of Romans 12. Very practical. Another positive is that there have been reports, of course, <laughs> the counterfeits, the new apostolic reformation, the hypercharismatics, all these guys, they love to get on board. And so there have been all sorts of things going on about certain individuals within these false, extreme, charismatic side of things. Going there, and I'm going there. Some of them even saying, I've been, I'm going there, I've been... What way did they word it? As if they'd been invited. It was almost framed as if they'd been invited over there. But they hadn't. They hadn't. The reports are coming out. The, the, the school has not invited these people. They don't want them there. They're not, not interested. In fact, they have kept it very low-key. They haven't invited some big-name preacher. It's all just low-key chapel speakers that are normally there. And they're keeping these other people at least away from being a, a focal point and what's happening, which is, to me, good organization. So those are some positives. I look at that and I say, it's controlled, confession of sin, lots of singing and prayer, no problem with that. Keeping out the, the hyper-charismatic leaders who want to try and take it as if they're part of it or something. So, positives. Cautions. Some cautionary remarks as you may hear about what's going on. The preaching isn't as solid as we would like. 
that's plain. I mean, you, you listen to any of it, it's not, it's not as solid as we might want. But I say that with the understanding that no sermon contains all truth. No sermon. And every sermon is preached in the context of knowledge that already has been acquired. Like every, every one of those kids knows something. And a word that's preached on the latter part of Romans 12 is, is just as apt to be used by God as anything else. It's not like they need to, some of them maybe, but let's, let's assume they are professing believers to some degree, or at least they make some mental assent to the historicity of the Son of God and His life and death and resurrection. Let's, let's assume that. They don't need to be convinced of it. They're really convinced of it. Maybe it hasn't become real to them. And it is becoming real to them now. Even though it may not be not someone standing up there giving arguments for Christ. Not an apologetic way like, like Peter on the day of Pentecost. It's a, it's a different setup. It's a different scene. It doesn't require the same kind of content. So, okay, it's not as solid as we might like, but that's not necessarily a reason to dismiss it. Woman preaching, that's going on too. And I'm looking at that, a lot of criticism. Like people are dismissing this immediately because there's a woman standing up there ministering in some way. And I'm watching that and I'm thinking to myself, well... Okay, I probably wouldn't be too comfortable with it. Wouldn't be deliberately sending anyone there to sit under that. And yet, yet, in the back of my mind, I'm also remembering that there is a place where women can instruct. And clearly we know that from Scripture, and we, and we know it through church history as well. Now, there's debates about that, there's deb- isn't there? There's debates. It's, so, church context, the presence of elders, should a woman be teaching? No. Could she maybe go in the open air and preach in the open air to, to men and women and people passing by? People have different views there in all sorts of conservative circles about whether a woman can stand and, and preach. My mentor, Albert McCauley, used to say that the first person to publicly herald the resurrection was a woman. So... <laughs> and then you have like the faith mission pilgrims going back to Scotland and Northern Ireland and different parts these faith mission pilgrims some of which were women they weren't pastors they weren't ordained as pastors but they would go into areas and they would conduct evangelistic campaigns and some of, the, some of those women could preach and God owned their ministry and people were converted under it the great day will tell the fruit of it all so I think, okay, it's not what I would want. At far rather, it was being led by men ordained and men who know how to handle the word carefully and so on. But, but hey, is that a reason to immediately dismiss everything? Well, just reserve judgment. Let's be careful. Another caution, repetitious singing of contemporary songs. A lot of repetitious 
singing of contemporary songs. Now, now you know, immediately, you, you come here and you're standing, you're, you're joining in the worship here. Our pieces are distinctly melody-driven, right? Distinctly melody-driven. And the contemporary stuff has a completely different structure, completely. I'm not going to get into the mechanics of that. I'm not even the person in this context to do that. We have far more adept and knowledgeable people who could talk about the theoretical distinctions between, let's say, classical hymn music and pieces versus the contemporary stuff. But there's a distinct shift in how it is, let's say, more generally groove-driven rather than melody-driven, which brings in riffs and all the rest of it. So that's been the emphasis, largely, that kind of music. Hillsong, Bethel, stuff that I would hope if it happened here, you all would probably just walk out straight away. Um, rightly so. So that's, that's not what we would want either. So those are some cautions. Then some facts, some positives, some cautionary notes, then some facts. First, not enough time has passed to call it a revival. Simple. I mean, we're a week into this. I have been in extended prayer meetings. I have been at youth weekends where young people, God came down upon us and we had extended seasons of prayer and spontaneous singing and went on for hours and hours and hours I've been there. I wouldn't call it revival in a technical or traditional sense. Were those there revived? Absolutely. Absolutely. Did we sense that God by His Spirit had come and was enabling us and moving us to pray in a way that was unusual? Yes. Was it something you wish you could bottle and drink from as and when desired? <laughs> yes. I made mention of this. I, I was converted in a kind of a... Not like this. It was different. Because most of the young people were not in control of their... You know, they were still dependent on their parents. They, they, they didn't weren't able to drive, they didn't have their own vehicles. But I was converted in a time when a lot of teenagers and young people in our church, they, they, this kind of thing was going on to some degree. To some degree. Let me illustrate. Friday night's youth fellowship, every week, they of their own accord were wanting to stay behind and pray after youth was done. They said, they were telling their parents, don't come early. They're planning to pray. And they did. They all they stayed and they prayed. Some of those that did have their own cars were able to get around their own volition. They, they were coming back to my mom's house. We're praying several nights through the week in addition. Now, we had work to go to. I was working. Most of them were working or at school. But in the evenings... We were coming to our home. My mom would just leave us to it. She'd go to her bedroom and go and read her Bible and pray herself. And there's maybe four, five, six, seven of us all in the living room crying out to God. 
for hours on end. Now, I was converted in the middle of that, <laughs> as I've said before. I thought this is the way church always was. <laughs> this is the way it always is. And so when summer came around and thing, the time, everything sort of changed with summer schedules and so on, we come back in September, I'm like, okay, let's go again. And there's no uptick of it. There's no, it's, no one seizing upon it. And I, I was, man, I was really discouraged. I was like, what happened? <laughs> Where's everyone gone? So, so I've I've had a taste of things like this, and other occasions I could discuss. We have a a weekend Castle Wellham weekend. It's a it's a youth weekend that starts on a Friday, goes through Monday. It's a bank holiday weekend in the first week of May in Northern Ireland. I remember one of those weekends. There was a group of us in a room, and we prayed all evening, all through the night. We were singing. Yeah. So this, this happens. None of them I would call revival, in my own experience. I wouldn't call it revival. I would call it a breath of God. I would call it a, 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 a little... Just a, a little indication of what can happen when God arrives on the scene. And the reason I don't call it revival is because I think we have to protect that term and recognize that in any real revival, there are additional aspects that contribute. It's not just a group or part of the church that is influenced and affected, but you find that a whole church will be affected, and the outflow of that will be even a community largely it will be affected. And there will be other marks, very distinct and unusual things will be going on that no one expected. And that that, and it will go on for a period of weeks, months, maybe even longer, maybe even a year or two, will go on like that, affecting the whole community around. There'll be long-term effects of of people going into uh, God's work their hearts are so deeply affected that they, they, they immediately surrender their life. And they're going, to, going into the ministry. They're going into missionary service and other aspects of, of surrender to serve the Lord. So not enough time has passed to call it a revival. Also, not enough influence has occurred to be called a revival, touching on what I just said. It hasn't really spread. Now, I saw pictures today and the line to get into the chapel is like, it's like, you can't get in. I mean, there's just hundreds and thousands of people who have turned up in the middle of Kentucky <laughs> to, to see what's going on, and they can't get in. Part of me hopes in some way that they protect those students from outside influences. But there, is, there are whispers already, and we'll see whether this is true. There are whispers of of some students in other places that are experiencing something similar-ish. And so there, there, there maybe is, maybe, maybe, maybe from Kentucky, there's a work of the Spirit that's just beginning to move out. Maybe. Time will tell. Not enough influence has occurred. So, those facts. Not enough time. Not enough influence yet to evaluate. 
And then also, not enough bad fruit has appeared to dismiss it altogether. Those are facts. There's not enough bad fruit to just throw this out and say it's nothing. So, my question is, I'm I'm wondering, are the affections of those young people and those that are there, are they being raised toward Christ? And are they beginning more and more to feel a holy hatred for their sin? If those two things are happening, even just like stripped down other criteria, their affections are being raised to the true Son of God and they begin to really hate every expression of sin in their hearts and everywhere else. can only be a good thing. tell you it's a whole lot better news than most of the headlines you read from day to day. Isn't it? I don't know if that is happening. It would appear it is. I don't know to what degree. I don't know how long-lasting. I don't know if it is just a brief time of excitement and they're caught up in the social media frenzy of it all. I don't know. Time will tell. Students, for hours and end, calling upon God, worshipping the Lord, confessing their sin, has to be a good thing. I'll tell you if it was happening, Bob Jones, some of us would be going to figure, like, we'd be going over there, wouldn't we? In fact, I'll tell you, almost, if I could have squeezed it in a day this week, <laughs> I had a conversation with Melanie on Monday night, is there any possible way I can drive up to Kentucky this week and come back again without having to reshuffle other obligations. There wasn't, so I didn't go. But I'm curious enough. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. There isn't a Sunday. Let me just end with this. There is not a Lord's Day in this place where even with our effort to do things orderly and biblically and right that God looks down And he's able to say, there's no sin there. They're all perfect. It's, it's not happening. It's not happening. So in any, any worship or any, anything, there's all sorts of shortcomings. But if someone is able to go to Kentucky and bring back what's there to Greenville, to this church, hey, I'd be all for it. I'd be all for it. If it raises your affections toward Christ, if it raises my affections towards Christ, if it makes me see sin as yet I do not see, or sin I do see that I, for whatever reason, I'm reluctant to let go of, 
If that happens, Lord, do not pass us by. So, if it's happening there, if it is, if God is working there, why not here? If you can work in a group of students who are humble enough to confess their sins and get real with God, it would be horrible if looking upon our hearts there's too much pride. The Lord help us. We're going to sing. Brother.